genius. I hate people. I hate people. This is why they're the worst. Are you ready for it? How much wood would a woodchuck chuck of a woodchuck could chuck wood? Oh my God, we both started talking at the same time. Uh, that's, that's a little tongue twister I usually do before the uh, the pod. How much wood would a woodchuck cut? I don't care. I'm over it. I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> Forget it. Just got to focus, Rach. I can't. Okay. Well, glad you're going. And no, I'm actually really, that's what I was saying before your woodchuck thing was I'm so amped <laughs> to be going. Oh, okay. And I love um, being the one to tell the story. It's fun. I know. All right, we have nothing at the top. Um, nothing to discuss? I guess no, not. No, I don't think anything's okay. on TV tonight. So I, I got nothing there. All right, well, then let's get going because it's, let's do it. I don't want to talk current events, even though I know so, it makes me weepy. I know, me too. Oh God! To the latest, you know, decision weighing heavily on women right now. I mean, I don't know when this is airing. I guess in a few but, weeks, but yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I can't weigh yeah. myself down with that anymore. I know. Okay. Sad, sad, dangerous, and unfair. Okay. Yep. Speaking of sad, dangerous, and unfair, do you want to hear about John List? Of course I do. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Okay. This story was actually recommended from a Reddit user as much as we talk shit about Reddit. (laughs) There's a lot of good out there. Tell ya. Sure is. And we were looking on our subreddit and just asked for suggestions, and they listed it, and we were like, oh, my God. I was like, this is already on my list. Yeah. This is a sign. So, and John List, you know? Yeah. Um, so, shout out to that person. I won't say their username because, you know, privacy, but it's clever. It's a good one. Jealous of it, actually. Well, here we go. I was worried that it might be, but oh, actually, never mind. Because I was like, is this too well-known? But I'm like, it's, I don't think it is. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's... I think people in, really into true crime, yes, probably know it. But... um, They may not. Because, I I mean, I first heard about it, well, I guess like a couple months ago. But I've been into true crime for God knows how long, I think. What? And I, only, I, I know like the overall story but i don't know the nitty-gritty of it well let me tell you about the nitty-gritty i have like a story within a story oh okay (laughs) that's good um okay well then i'll just tell you all about it please do okay the list family lived in westfield new jersey in a 19 oh wait i'm sorry skirt sources (laughs) Uh, new york times wikipedia associated press all things interesting and la times all right uh, the List family lived in Westfield, New Jersey, in a 19-room mansion that had a ballroom, billiards room, marble fireplaces, the works. Mm-hmm. It's uber pretty. I'll post it when I when we post this episode. I can only imagine how pretty it is. Okay. It's really pretty. Mm-hmm. It was John List and his wife, Helen. They were both 46 years old. John's 85-year-old mother, Alma, 
And John and Helen's three kids, 16-year-old Patricia, 15-year-old John Jr., and 13-year-old Frederick. They appeared to be the ideal family. John was a successful accountant. Uh, They all went to church every Sunday, where John also taught Sunday school. Just ideal 1960s American dream vibe. Mm -hmm. You know? He taught Sunday school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. (laughs) So, (laughs) They were somewhat reclusive. They really didn't chat or hang with the neighbors. In fact, one neighbor said that she brought she brought them pie to welcome them to the neighborhood when they first moved. And John told her he was not interested in making friends. <laughs> I do remember that part. And I'm like, mazel. <laughs> but also like, chill. Mad it's res- a gesture. I'm not asking we become blood brothers. <laughs> like, ain't nobody trying to be your best friend. Also, I'll take the pie. I know. <laughs> What a jerk. Uh, respect the honesty. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you come one step closer, please know that I hate people. Right. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you come borrow sugar from me, I'm not interested. Yeah. Thanks for the dank pile. <laughs> but in early 1971, neighbors noticed that although the house was always lit up, there just didn't seem to be much activity. And there hadn't been in a few weeks. Then they noticed that light bulbs were going out one by one. Mm. And finally, on December 7th, 1971, one of the neighbors called the cops. Mm. So cops knocked on the door for a welfare check. When no one answered, they found an unlocked basement window. And when they went in, the sound of organ music, specifically a religious hymn, was blaring over the intercom. Ooh, that is the creepiest. Oh, doesn't that give you the willies? Yeah. And then, Spooky. It's like a haunted house. I know. And it made me think, didn't Aunt... Okay, so look quick. Has nothing to do with John Lewis background story, but I had a question for Rebecca, and it's not going to make sense unless you know this. When we first graduated college, she moved to D.C. and found this house on Craigslist, went up there to possibly sign a lease. The woman who owned it was... Bad shit. Insane. Like that honest to God could be an episode in it of itself. Like I might do it. He, I mean, it, the craziest she was series shit crazy. of events took place. Her name was Anne. It also was Emma. We don't know. <laughs> but I was like, did, I wrote a note. I was like, didn't she, didn't you walk into her like hoarder's house and she was playing weird music or did I invent that when I <laughs> called you? I called her once to, sit, to ask her if Anne had ever drove up the front yard of their house going 90 <laughs> blaring Christmas music out the windows because that's just something she would have done. And we all had a big really? laugh. But now I'm like, wait, or did, was that true or did I make that no, one up? You really sensationalized the story. <laughs> Christmas music. <laughs> and you just, have front yards in D.C.? Get out of here. Um, yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, no, she had one of those pull-down attics, and she was like, this could be a bedroom for someone. There's like an unfinished attic. She suggested one of us sleep in a sleeping bag. Like, <laughs> for <laughs> 1500 bucks a month yeah. in 2012. But I don't remember Christmas music. It no. sounded no. so familiar that you, like, walked in, <laughs> and it was, like, some weird music playing. But maybe not. I, I think I dreamed it. I <laughs> want it to be true is the thing. I know. Your imagination's getting the best of you. Um, the attic <laughs> thing, that's so illegal. Like, y'all should have just... <laughs> y'all. It's like, um, no, because we're not 
a bat or a vampire. <laughs> but thank you. But thank you. Also, how Put much? Put your shoes on. Ew. Um, sorry, that was the most annoying sidebar probably, but I promise y'all, I'm just going to tell it one day. <laughs> I just have to like organize my thoughts because it was over several weeks of batshit crazy. And it'll just be a solo app. I'll just be... I won't be we'll, participating in that one. We'll phone a friend. <laughs> yeah. Kate, Kathy. Uh-huh. Come on down. Okay. So they come in, organ music, blaring through the intercom. So creepy. So spooky. They went upstairs and found Helen and the three kids shot to death in the ballroom. Oh, my God. John's mom, Alma, was upstairs in her room, wrapped up in a carpet, shot in the eye. Ow. Oh, my God. There was also a five-page note from John on the counter explaining what happened. John had a little secret. Mm. In 1971, he lost his job as an accountant, and subsequent jobs never panned out. Like, he tried to sell insurance for a second after that. It just wasn't working. Yeah. He was swimming in debt, estimated to be $200,000 in debt, which in 1971, that's the equivalent today of... 1.4 1.4 million. Holy shit. How do you keep that from your... I mean, I guess back then they weren't as involved. Big girl. You got to do the books. Fair well, number with that much debt, I would know right offhand. Well, sure. But, well, I'll get to that. Okay. Um, he was terrified to tell his family. So he kept getting up, going, getting dressed for work, going to work. As you do. As you do. And in reality, he was just going to the train station and sitting there reading the newspaper like nothing was wrong. Kept his Mm -hmm. damn mouth shut to anyone to keep up appearances. Like, Helen did not know. God. Yikes. (sighs) I know. All the while, he was secretly stealing money from his mom's account to pay his bills, mortgage, what have you. So that was his big secret. And on the morning of November 9th, 1971, he told the milkman and newspaper deliverer to cancel all deliveries. He also contacted his kids' school and told them that they would be out for a few weeks visiting an ailing grandmother in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. He then went into the kitchen and shot Helen while she was having her morning coffee. Then he went upstairs, killed his mother, (sighs) shot her in the eye. Gross. Gross. Wrapped her up in a carpet, tried to bring her downstairs, but couldn't. It was too heavy. So he just left her in her room. And then he put Helen's body in a Boy Scout sleeping bag, dragged her into the ballroom, and cleaned up the blood. Oof. His initial plan was to wait for the kids to come home from school and kill them. But 16-year-old Patricia called him in the middle of the day saying she was sick and he needed to come pick her up. So he did. And as she walked through the front door, he shot her in the back <gasps> of the head. Oh. I know. How old is Patricia again? 16. Oh, I know. He put her body in another sleeping bag, also took her to the ballroom next to her mom. After that, he went and ran errands. He went to the bank, stole a little bit more money from his mom, mailed a letter to his pastor telling, confessing everything. I think it's essentially a copy of the letter the cops found on the counter. Oh, see that? I don't think I knew that. Okay. Then he picked up his 13-year-old son, Frederick, from his after-school job, where he told Frederick's boss that, Fred, again, he'd be out for a few weeks visiting an ailing grandmother. Mm-hmm. 
And then same as Patricia, when Frederick walked through the front door, he shot him in the back of the head, put him in the ballroom. Oh. I know, it's really sad. So sad. 15-year-old John Jr. came home from soccer practice earlier than expected, which really threw John off. John Jr. walked in, saw the massacre. John Sr.'s gun misfired and a struggle ensued. (gasps) Oh, God. I know, so scary. Yeah. Ultimately, obviously, John Sr. overpowered his 15-year-old baby and shot him 10 times. Jesus. I know. Overkill. I know, he's a dick. Ew. Again, he dragged him to the ballroom, put towels over all of their faces, and then knelt down to say a prayer. Fuck off. No one wants to hear your damn prayer. (laughs) I literally typed out, fuck off. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. And covering their faces, is that, that's like, isn't that like very personal or means you cared about them or something? Oh, I don't know anything about that. Yeah. If a murderer covers, if a victim's found with their face covered, it means the victim knew them. I mean, the the murderer knew them, typically. Okay. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So you're not like, yeah. So you're not, you don't have to see what you just did. Right. So you don't have to look at them in the face and they don't have to look at you in the face type of thing. Oh my God. What if when I walked in after Charlie ripped off all of his T-Rex arms off, he was crying (laughs) over a T-Rex with a covered face? (laughs) Because the rest of it's true. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that. My son had a crime of passion. It was a crime of passion. I heard him screaming my name. He was supposed to be asleep. I was like, oh my God. And I ran up there and he was crying over his like little foam T-Rex. He had ripped off the legs and arms and said, I didn't mean to. Was a boy sobbing. (laughs) I don't know what made him snap, but he regretted it after. Uh But T Rex's face wasn't covered. (laughs) Well, then he didn't care. (laughs) It's a crime of passion. (laughs) It's a crime of passion, and he had no remorse. Well, psycho. God, I wish I filmed that. (laughs) Next, this is like so eerie to me, and I don't know why. So, kneels down, says a prayer. After that, he. Cut himself out of all family pictures, made himself dinner, went to bed in the billiards room. I don't know why they're woke up and bolted. <gasps> so mind you, this all happened on November 9th and cops finally went to the house on December 7th. So he had like a month almost head start because oh it was God. just so meticulously planned. Like he thought of every he stopped deliveries on like milk and newspaper like there's no reason someone would have thought anything otherwise for a little you know at least a little bit clearly almost a month and actually i read somewhere that patricia could see something was brewing and told what i actually read this in a couple places so it may be true seems really spot on though Mm -hmm. so she could tell something was brewing and told one of her drama teachers that she was very worried about her dad and if something weird came up for the teacher to come over to the house and check on her. So when the teacher caught wind of her being out of town, missing school for several weeks, he made a point to drive by the house on the night of the murders or on the day of the murders. But when he saw all the lights were on, he figured everything was fine. Wait, did did she elaborate on how he was acting weird or why? I mean, she must have had a very big hunch. I know. To tell a teacher that. Yeah, I know. But I read that 
But then again, like the New York Times article did not say that. So I'm like, was this like a blog? I don't know. It, it seems yeah. rumorish for some reason. Okay. But I interesting. Bet, yeah. I bet I know why he slept in the billiards room. Wow. Because he has three kids. They probably didn't go in there that often. It probably just doesn't remind him of things. Like if he went to his own bedroom, could see uh, little Frederick running in and jumping on the oh, bed. You know, just God. memories. You can really get in the mindset of a psycho. <laughs> just that's what I would saying. imagine. Why would you sleep in a random ass room in your mansion? It's probably because they didn't go in there that often. Doesn't remind of. Doesn't have m- many memories. Right. Okay. Gosh. Wow. What gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, police find all this. The hunt was on. Fuck yeah. Very soon after the bodies were found, the FBI found John's car at JFK, but there was no record of him boarding a flight. Then, nothing. Crickets for 18 years. Holy shit. I don't know it was that long. They couldn't find him, and with no reliable pictures of himself, they had nothing to, like, to release to the public to help search. Oh, my God. 1971, man. You could Crazy. never get away with this. I know. It's like, so weird. Okay. He he cut out himself Ew. out of every family photo. So they were like, I forgot that is so spooky. It's so spooky. They're like, they've cousins, family, anyone. Well, I, I think mean, ultimately they got one. It just wasn't easy it, because in 1989, an expert forensic artist, Frank Bender, created a physical bust of John as he imagined he would have aged. To help him, they enlisted a psychologist that theorized that John would be wearing the same horn-rimmed glasses that he wore when he was younger to remind him of more successful days. They're like... That is fascinating. Isn't that interesting? He was like, based on the facts surrounding this, like, he wants to hold on to those days, so he's going to look similar so they made a bust of what he would he looked like when he was in his mid forties when this happened, and then just like aged it. They like gave him that little neck sag oh, yeah. thing. Uh huh. The gobble gobble. Uh huh. Kept the same glasses, um, just things like that. So they make the bust based off of all this, and I will post that when I post this episode. <gasps> it looks exactly like him. It is dead on. Wait, what a fascinating job. So he's just like a, talk about someone who can get in the mind of a psycho. I know. Being like, no, he's going to wear the same glasses because that's what he wore when he was successful and wants to hold on to those. Golly. It's crazy. But it is like, I went deep into that Google image search because the picture that kept coming up, I was like, that is him. Because they did a side by side. I was like, there's not, both of these are real people. It is the craziest. So I'll post it. Mm -hmm. So uh, they have that bust, killing it. On May 21st, 1989, again, 18 years after the murder and on our second birthday, if you remember. Uh Uh-huh, I do. Hell of a party. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) America's Most Wanted aired an episode featuring the List family murders and showed a picture of the bust and tips came pouring in. Hell yeah. One of the tips was from a woman in a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, who thought the bus looked like her neighbor, Robert Clark, a church-going accountant who wore those exact same glasses. 
FBI went to Robert Clark's home and confronted his stunned wife, who he had met at church social. After she helped fill in the blanks from the past, they arrested him at his office on June 1st, 1989, only nine days after our second birthday and after the America's Most Wanted episode. Oh, he my God. obviously denied that, it, that he was John List, but fingerprints confirmed otherwise. And as a fugitive, he had assumed a new identity and lived quietly in Virginia and in Denver for 18 years. Holy shit. I thought they found him in Florida. That's why I was not thinking anything of this. Richmond guy. Oh. Oh, no, it really was home. But it's just like he assumed a new identity, but he like really kept his old life. He was still an accountant, still like devout churchgoer, remarried. Like everything about him was the same except his name. The trial started in 1990 and his defense attorneys argued that John was going through a midlife crisis when he killed them. He suffered from PTSD from his military service in World War II and in Korea. Also, during the trial, a few other family secrets came out. They said that Helen, his wife, had five scotches a day, was addicted to tranquilizers, and had advanced syphilis, which was (gasps) causing a huge strain on her mental health. So, you know, syphilis can make you go crazy. I would have five scotches a day, too. I know, for real. Ma'am. Her sister testified in court. This is Helen's sister. Testified in court that while she went to visit them, For several days, Helen only came out of her bedroom once and, as her sister put it, was very unkempt. She actually said the bedroom itself, as well as she, were both very unkempt. It was just a mess. In addition, they alleged that his daughter Patricia dabbled in witchcraft and believed herself to be a witch. So John felt like he had to kill the family to save their souls and get them into heaven. Oh, my God. Okay. These church go, it's always, these murderers always are very religious. I just can't imagine the Bible okay's murder. Well, God, you're really stepping on some toes. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Keep on going. And why didn't he turn the gun on himself if he wanted to save everyone in the family? Why wouldn't he be with them in the afterlife? Damn it, Rebecca. You are really... Stepping on my mother fucking toes. <laughs> so, oh, okay, great. Just so chill. The nitty gritty. All right. I'll chill. pipe down. Okay. Pipe down. Okay. Yeah, so it was his responsibility. Well, then hurry. <laughs> God. It was his responsibility <laughs> to get them into heaven because they were just astray. So nonetheless, prosecution pointed out none of these are valid excuses for killing five innocent people. No. The jury 100% agreed. And on April 12th, 1990, he was found guilty on five counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to five life sentences. Peace out. Also, fun fact, during the trial, Conan O'Brien was just fascinated by this, so he would take the train from New York to go watch the trial. He told... Remember when... um, he was promoting his podcast on My Favorite Murder, and he told George and Karen that. I was like, oh, my yeah. God, I love that. I know. I forgot about that. Yeah, I remember he did that for one case. I didn't realize it was John List. It was oh, John okay. List. He, he was just fascinated. So he, like, I think he was writing for SNL all the time, and he, like, just after work would be like, oof, got to hurry to get that train. Oh, my God. That is funny. Where was the trial? In Richmond? No, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. The murders were there. Yeah. Right. I love that. I looked for pictures of like the courtroom 
during the John List trial to see if there was a tall, tall ass redhead. <laughs> tall ass redhead, but to no avail. Oh. And so, yes, a jury agreed five life sentences. Good. First degree murder. Like his defense was just like grasping at straws, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. he wrote a five page letter confessing it. What else can you do? Good riddance. Good riddance. Okay, so this is like my favorite part, kind of, Mm -hmm. because I have a story within a story. Okay. There was a theory that John was also D.B. Cooper. Do you know who D.B. Cooper is? I don't. Let me tell you. D.B. Cooper was an unidentified man who boarded a Northwest Orient flight from Portland to Seattle on November 24th, 1971, two weeks after the List family murders and Thanksgiving Day, under the alias Dan Cooper, hence it somehow turned into D.B., but hence everyone calling him D.B. Cooper. He sat in his seat on the flight, ordered a bourbon soda, then handed the nearest flight attendant a note and said, you better read that. I have a bomb. (gasps) the note directed her to sit next to him, which she did. She asked to see the bomb, and he opened his briefcase and showed her what looked to be dynamite. (gasps) Then he stated his demands. He wanted $200,000, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck to be waiting on them when they land in Seattle. The airline president approved the ransom, and the pilot circled Seattle until everything was, like, ready for him. Oh, my God. The flight attendants described him as well-dressed, well-spoken, mid-40s man. They said he was very nice, never nasty, didn't seem nervous at all. Apparently, they said he was, quote-unquote, not the typical take-me-to-Cuba type of hijacker. (laughs) He ordered another bourbon soda. Sure. Paid for it. Oh. He, like, paid his bill while hijacking the plane. And even demanded that while they were stopped in Seattle, the entire crew get fed. (gasps) He told the flight attendant, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. Wow. So he was just uber nice. Like the nicest hijacker they've ever dealt with. Yeah, I'm sure. So once they landed in Seattle, he made sure all of his demands were met. And then he let all the passengers go. And there's 35 other passengers on the flight. So he'll let them go. He tells the crew they're going to Mexico City. He like lays out a flight plan and demands that the entire crew get in the cockpit with the pilots. While they're in the cockpit, an alert went off in the cockpit and the pilot went over the intercom and asked if he needed help. To which he said no. And then they immediately felt a shift in cabin pressure. He had opened opened the door and jumped out somewhere over Southwest Washington and was never seen Shut again. up. That's to this the most day. shocking thing you've said in this whole episode. That's why it was my favorite part. I just love it. Okay, so obviously they gave him $200,000 in $20 bills. So they had all serial numbers, obviously. The FBI arranged it for him. So obviously they had all the serial numbers, but none of the cash ever turned up the only small portion that did washed up on the shore of the columbia river in pacific northwest oh my god i know 
uh, aside from that, it, it it's all marked. They do not. They have no idea where it is. Holy shit! How? And he called himself DB Cooper. He, or he bought like the plane. Yeah, yeah, plane. Yeah, his plane, plane ticket. ticket said Dan Cooper, which was not a real name. DB Cooper. Uh huh. Because of the description of him, how close it was to the murders, and that the ransom was for $200,000, which is exactly how much John List owed in debt, it was obviously quickly rumored that D.B. Cooper was John List. Yeah. I mean, we may never know. They The flight attendant said he was wearing dark glasses. But aside from that, it was like mid-40s. Like, it kind of matches up. I sort of don't think it could be him. I just, like, an accountant... Like, how does he get away with that? And and wouldn't anyone in his life come forward and be like, oh, yeah, he was an avid skydiver. Like, how would he know how to use those parachutes? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's true. I mean, that is like, in the note he gave to the flight attendant was handwritten. Like, I'm. how has he never been oh, found? right. Yeah, I don't think it's John List. It's just too... yeah. But then again, John Lewis got away for 18 years. I know, Maybe but by was, now we would know with the handwritten letter he left in the kitchen of confessing to murdering his family with the handwritten letter, uh, yeah. ransom note, by now we would know. Yeah. Someone, a handwriting analysis expert would figure it out for us. Yeah. But, and then, I don't know, he just seemed to have left clues. Oh, well, actually, I just put this together. John List served in the military. Initially, during the hijacking, oh. they tried to give him military parachutes, and he said, no, give me, they like had to go to like a skydiving school. He, they needed like, he needed like civilian parachutes or whatever that would be. I don't get that. What? The hijacker, D.B. Cooper, yeah. asked for four parachutes. Right. When they landed in Seattle, they presented him with four military parachutes. And he uh. said, no. I need, like, civilian parachutes. I guess he w- didn't know how to use the military ones, but then uh, it just clicked with me that John Liss served in the military, so he probably would have known how to use those. Unless John Liss was being like, no, 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 they're going to tie me to that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Well, but that's I just crazy. L- love that conspiracy. I know. Me too. I'm like fascinated on now. I need to find out when you Google it. It's like DB Cooper, Amelia Earhart, everyone who's missing from what's a going flight. on. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. Isn't that crazy? So in 2002, in what I believe is the only televised interview John List ever gave. Oh hell yeah! Connie Chung asked him, "Why didn't you just take your own life if you were feeling that overwhelmed?" Just like you asked when you kept flapping your gums at me. <laughs> and I'm he a said he reporter. I'm a journalist, Rach. I'm sorry. I'm just doing my job. I know, for real. Okay. He said that he thought suicide would have barred him from heaven. Oh, jeez. And that he had hoped to be reunited there with his family, saying, quote, this is so gross. Ew. Quote, I feel when we get to heaven, we won't worry about these earthly things. They'll either have forgiven me or won't realize, you know, what happened. Oh, John, like, you ain't going to heaven. Well, and one thing straight. They know what you did. No, they know what you did. I hate them Everyone so much. knows what you did. God knows what you did. Yeah. Piece yeah. of shit. 
There you go. So he served his sentences until March 2008 when he died of pneumonia at age 82. Here's actually the ball drop. The List House was destroyed by fire in August 1972, which was nine months after the murders. It was officially ruled an arson, but remains unsolved with no suspects. But ready for it? Yeah. When the fire destroyed the home, it was discovered that this huge stained glass skylight that was in the ballroom was actually a signed Tiffany skylight worth $100,000 in 1971, the equivalent to $721,000 today. Oh, so he would have paid off majority of his debt. Had he known that, would this all have happened? I don't know. I don't know. Like, probably if, not. If you're capable of doing that, though, like something else probably would have triggered you, but it was worth 100000 allegedly. He was allegedly 200000 in debt, but he was only 200000 in debt because he was stealing from his mom to make up for losing his job. Had he known yeah. he had $100,000 sitting above his head in his own house, he could have lost his job, somehow made money off that. <laughs> right. And survived a little while longer without stealing $200,000 from his mom. So who <sighs> knows? My God. Speculation. Did you keep saying, did you keep saying allegedly because you were scared he was going to sue you? <laughs> No, I get scared of, like, Reddit trolls telling me that I'm ill-researched, even though, uh, because it, it everywhere I've read that did say alleged. So uh, I, I hate to state it as fact when I'm not totally sure. Right. You okay. know? I do. But, and I'm also scared he'll sue me. <laughs> from, from the pits <laughs> for, of hell. For slander and defamation. Uh-huh. For sure. Wow. Okay. See, I didn't know the nitty gritty of it. See, good one. Crazy. Yes. All along, you didn't have to kill your children and wife and mother. I mean, psycho. Whom you fed from the teat. Whom fed you from the teat? Oh wait. Oh. <laughs> Nine thirty, man. Whom I know these nighttime recordings. I know it's too late. I'm not quick with it. I do my best, though. That was a good one. That was such a good story. Yeah. Good one. Sad. Obviously. Yep. Oh, my God. Well, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Y'all are the best, but people are the worst. That's true. Bye. Bye. Bye.